Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome back to The X Factor, uh, the, the podcast for leaders by leaders. I'm really excited about our guest today. He's a best-selling author where his books have been uh, translated into 10 different languages. He's an incredible keynote speaker, and he says he's an unlikely four-time winter Olympian, but I think everybody's an unlike, unlikely Olympian, even if it goes into uh, uh, four times. So uh, his name is Ruben Gonzalez. Ruben, it's great to speak to, with you again. Hey, Steve. Good to see you. Yes. So Ruben, why don't you tell everybody what you do and and, and how you got here? Sure. Um, I was born in Argentina. Uh, my dad was a chemical engineer uh, with Exxon. I was born in a little stinky uh, refinery town in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And when I was six, our family moved to the States. Things were getting really rough over there, uh, terrorism and hyperinflation. And so he figured out a way to get himself transferred. Um, we were in Queens, New York for a couple of years, then Houston most of my life, uh, Venezuela for a couple of years. And then uh, we moved to Colorado about 12 years ago. But so... Um, all of a sudden, I'm in Queens, New York. I'm the only kid that doesn't speak English in school because we speak Spanish. And school is tough. And I got uh, I got bullied a lot because kids are always looking for, you know, something about you that's different. And so mine was easy to spot. And uh, I learned to speak uh, English by reading adventure books. I, I love to read adventure books. I had them in Spanish. My parents got them in English, brought in a tutor and and a couple of years later, I'm speaking English, and I was always looking for my adventure. Um, I wanted my life to be just like those books I read. When I was 10 years old, I, I see the Olympics on TV for the first time in my life, and I was hooked. I thought, man, that's what I want to do. Problem is, I'm a slowpoke. I was always the last kid picked for PE. Um, a lot of heart, but no body. And so after a while, I, I kind of lost hope. I didn't think it was possible. Uh, how am I going to be in the Olympics if I'm not even, you know, getting to play kickball? And so a couple of years went by, but my dad said, why don't you, you know, you like to read books, read some biographies. If you'll study the lives of great people, you'll figure out what works and what doesn't work in life. I started reading them. I realized real quick that biographies are like true life adventures. And I started looking for one thing because I thought I can't work on 20 different things, but maybe I can work on one. And what I kept seeing was perseverance. Uh, these people were um, you know, they were hardheads, basically, right? They refused to quit. They were tenacious. My mom always called me a hardhead, so that was good news. I thought, okay, maybe I have a little bit of what it takes. I just need to polish it up. So I made a decision. At 12 years old, I made a decision to change my life. I, I said, from today on, Ruben doesn't quit anything. And by high school, my nickname was Bulldog. Other kids started noticing that I was tenacious. And uh, the other thing my dad always said was the books you read, people you hang around with. You want to hang around winners because uh, you pick up the habits of people you associate with. Uh, and so I did that. And unbeknownst to me, I was growing on the inside, right? I was uh, starting to take bigger chances, uh, starting to uh, believe in myself more, become a little bit more confident. And so all this is percolating on the inside. And when I'm 21 years old, I'm in college, uh, I'm a... A five-minute bench soccer player on my college team. We coach said, "You get to play. We're winning by two goals." I think he he kept me around because I was gun ho and I got everybody to you know work harder. But uh, the Olympics roll around again. Eighty-four Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games. And I'm watching on TV and I see Scott Hamilton win the gold medal in figure skating, and everything changed in my head. I guess my vision of Olympians were that they were superhuman. They were huge and 
you know, covered with muscles and, and that left me out. And so I see Scott Hamilton and like, wow, all of a sudden I had hope. I thought if that little guy can win, I can at least play. I want to find a sport. I won't be in the next Olympics. I just got to find a sport. And so I went to the library. I get a big book about the Olympics. I'm looking through the summer sports. It takes me five minutes to realize you got to be Superman to do any of these things. No way. And then I started looking at the winter sports and, and the analytical side of my brain woke up. I'm a chemistry, biology, double major. I'm very analytical. If I can graph it, I love it. But once I get the facts, I put the books aside and I take action. Because action is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, if you're an eternal learner, nothing happens. And so um, I'm starting to look at these winter sports. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm about to put together a plan for the next four years. It probably makes sense to base the plan on my strengths. My strength is not athleticism. I'm just okay athlete. My strength is perseverance. I'm bulldog, right? So I thought, I need to find a sport that's to so tough. The sport's got so many broken bones in it. There'll be a lot of quitters. Only I won't quit. And so I headed down to ski jump, bobsled, and luge. I lived in Houston, Texas, hot, hot humid Houston. I never skied before, so ski jump is out. That would have been suicide. <laughs> and then bobsled. I mean, where are you going to find three other nuts that want to do the bobsled? You got to go to Jamaica for that. And so uh, that left the luge. I'd never seen it on TV. If I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. I just had a little picture of a guy on a luge. I thought, that looks tough. That's one for me. I wrote Sports Illustrated a letter asking, where do you go learn how to luge? They actually wrote back. They said Lake Placid, New York. And I called them up. And uh, I, I'm an athlete here in Houston. I want to learn how to luge. So I'll be in the Olympics in four years. Will they help me? And the guy goes, how old are you? And I said, 21. And he starts laughing. He says, you're too old. We start them off when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. By now, you should have 10, year, 10 years experience. There's no way, no way. I, uh, I knew that hanging up was not an option, right? That would have been the end. And so I just kept talking to him, talking to him. And finally, he gets fed up. And you know, I feel, you know uh, there's a camp coming up in a few weeks. Be there. And so I went. And it was uh, really tough. <laughs> I mean, before I went, he said, actually, before we, we finished our, our call, he said, before you come out here, you need to know two things. Number one, you want to do it at your age. You want to do it in just four years. It's brutal. Nine out of 10 people quit. Well, I started smiling. I thought, wow, this works right into my plan. This is perfect. <laughs> What's the second thing? He said, expect to break some bones. And I said, great. And he got real quiet. He finally comes back. He goes, what's wrong with you, man? I just told you you're going to break some bones. I mean, are you nuts? I said, look, I hope it's 10 times harder what you're telling me. I hope it's 100 times harder because the harder it is, the easier it is for me because I'm not a quitter. I'm bulldog. I was praying it would be so hard that some of the Germans would quit, right? But I, I didn't pray hard enough. <laughs> they show up. They race. They pick up their medals. They didn't even get, get excited because they've got so many of them. And, and off they go. And so I hang up the phone and the reality of the guy, what the guy said uh, hit me. I thought, whoa, he didn't say I might break some bones. He said I would break some bones. So, so how am I going to handle it? And I thought, well, I've broken bones before. You know, you wear a cast for six weeks, take it off. It's healed up and stronger than before. So when you really think about it, it's just a temporary inconvenience. And so I reframed it in my mind and I had a contingency plan. I knew how I was going to handle it. I, it, it him... Him not candy coating it, him trying to talk me out uh, of, of going actually did me a, a service because it, I, I realized I got to put on mental armor to get myself ready because it's going to be tough. So I go, they put me in a class with 15 other guys every day. A couple of them are quitting. These guys are quitting because they got a bruise. 
And uh, I don't know, maybe they didn't want it badly enough, but um, maybe they didn't think it through like I had, but I, I stayed on it. And uh, first couple of years were brutal. Broke my foot twice, my knee, my hand, my elbow, my hand, my thumb, a couple of ribs. But I just kept coming back. And, uh, you know, uh, you stay in the game long enough, you start learning skills and you start figuring it out. And, uh, and that's what I did. And after two years, I was barely getting down from the top of the track. This is really a 10-year process from when you start losing till you're at men's start. And they just, you know, they, they crammed it into two years. That's why he said I was going to get hurt. And uh, then I started competing internationally because you have to be in the top 50 in the world back then. And I, I made it four times by the skin on my teeth, but I made it. And I got to play with the big boys. And, uh, and that was my dream. Uh, believe it or not, you know, this is probably going to sound strange, but what drew me to the Olympians when I was a kid it wasn't their their athleticism. It was their spirit. It was their heart. Because I realized this is a group of people that have a dream. They're willing to train for years and years and years with no guarantees of success. And then some of them, some of them make it. I thought, you got to be so tough to just put yourself through all that. And they became my heroes. I put them up on a pedestal. And I, I just want to be like them. I want to be one of those guys. And so just uh, uh, getting to come. It wasn't about the medals for me. It was about being one of those guys. It's like the uh, accepting myself, right? Uh, that, that I had been able to climb up and, and at least stand on the edge of that, of that, uh, that pedestal. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me this, you, 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 you write about that, that there's two types of courage that people need. What, what, uh, can you help the, um, the listeners understand what those two types of courage are? Sure. Uh, my first book uh, is called uh, The Courage to Succeed. Mm -hmm. And it's about the courage to succeed, right? Everybody's courage to succeed, not my courage. Makes sense? Yeah. It's just a, a concept. And mm -hmm. so I believe that you have to have two types of courage. You have to have the courage to get started. And everything is tough at the beginning, right? Because you don't have any any clue how to do it. You don't have any skills. And so you have to stay in the game long enough to learn those skills. So you have to endure. You have to have the courage to endure. Now, the courage to get started comes from believing it's possible. If you believe something's possible, hey, I'll give it a shot, right? The courage to not quit, that comes from your desire. If you want something badly enough, ain't nothing going to make you quit. Well, I was I always had the desire, right? I wanted to be an Olympian. I mean, I, that's all I thought about. I was fascinated with the idea. But I didn't believe it was possible, so I didn't do anything. And it took 11 years for me to get the belief. And when I saw Scott Hamilton, boom, I was ready to take action. And so you got to have the courage to get started, courage to not quit. Okay. So if there's, you know, one of the things I've learned is that whenever courage is present, fear is also present. So... Yes, regarding yes. the you know the the you know the, the the courage to get started and or the courage to endure right what type of fear is the most is is stronger i think that what holds people back what holds most people back from achieving or even from even you know attempting right to go after their goals and dreams is fear of the unknown and, and fear of failure I mean, a little bit of fear of success, too. But I think fear of the unknown because they don't know. And 
if you face your fear, nine times out of 10, you realize that that fear, if you do what you fear, the fear disappears. Why? Because you realize that it was just a smoke screen, right? It was just like a, like a fog covering up and you couldn't see. But when you cross the fog, you realize, hey, it was okay. I can do this now, right? And so it's in your head. Yeah. Most of the time, right? I mean, fear of jumping off the top of a 10-story building, that's a good fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you. So so when... So the thing about the luge is that I mean you're you're it's you're going down so fast well like 80 90 miles an hour yeah yeah and so yeah that would scare the bejesus out of me <laughs> okay so and I I can't assume that it's normal to really enjoy that so how do you how do you get over that you know how, how did you confront that fear and then use that fear you know to propel that courage that's a great question. I had fear. I white knuckled it, right? For 25 years, okay? Mm-hmm. I was scared. Uh, the handles are made of rebar. They're just a couple of, imagine two pieces of rebar about the size of a, a, of a letter C, a little letter C squashed, and you just stick your hand in there and you're holding them, right? Mm-hmm. Next to your sides. And a couple of times in the first couple of years, I'd gotten to the bottom of the track and I had bent the rebar straight up out of sheer terror, right? That's mm. how scared I was. But I kept at it. Why? Because I realized that the luge was my vehicle, okay? That was going to take me to where I wanted to go. A ping pong paddle wasn't going to take me there. A soccer ball wasn't going to take me there. And so the luge was the vehicle. I focused on the dream. I just focused on the dream. And the coaches understand that. They're constantly uh, telling you about how great it's going to be. They're painting that picture in your mind, right, to keep the desire high. And and uh, I went through a tougher time than most losers because they, 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 they go up very slowly. They start when they're little kids. And for the first uh, few years, they're going from a really low start. They're going slow. And kids are fearless anyways. And so um, and then a few years later, they're going a little bit higher. When they're 19, they have to move up to the higher uh, uh, the higher uh, starts. But, uh, but, but it's been so gradual that, that it's been okay. And so I, I was scared big time, and, but I did it regardless. And, and like you said, courage, yeah. If, if you don't fear something, then it's not courage. <laughs> courage means you did it regardless of the fear, right? <laughs> I mean, and so um uh somebody that, that's a, a german medalist in the luge he has no fear right why because he started when he was five and so he has you know maybe his courage is in in uh, riding a horse but not in the luge for me i was terrified on the way to when i started training for the vancouver olympics um one of my coaches it was the first coach i ever had that understood he could get into my head Okay. All the other coaches were luge guys or luge mechanics, but they didn't know. And I'd get to the bottom of the track. I'd pick up the walkie talkie and they just saw you zip by. And that's when they tell you, you know, how you did. And he'd always coach would always finish the old coach. He would always finish the the conversation with Ruben. You must relax. Be one with a sled. Have fun. Click. Yeah. Yeah. It's like telling somebody, believe in yourself. It sounds good, but it doesn't help. Right. (laughs) So how do you believe in yourself? Well, Read good books, hang around winners, and 
let it percolate for a few years, and then you're gonna believe in yourself, and 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 because you'll gradually start taking more chances. So, Coach Jonathan Edwards, uh, he had competed for the U.S., got fourth place in the doubles in the Little Hammer Olympics, and but more importantly, he know, he's got fruit on the trees, which is important, right? He's a guy that can take me through that minefield, but he also knew how to uh, how the mind works, and so he says, Ruben, I can't believe you're still scared. You've been doing this sport for over 25 years. I mean, what's going on in your head when you're sliding? I told him. Man, as I see those walls going faster and faster, I get tighter and tighter. And by the bottom of the track, I'm so scared I can barely, you know, I can barely steer because I'm stiff like a board. And he said, luge is not about speed. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, it's not. It's the only sport, winter or summer, that's timed to the one one thousandth of a second. It's yeah. about who has the best time, okay? And so... You need to stop looking at those walls because they're just scaring you, okay? Focus. Pretend you're a, a horse. You know, you got blinders on, on the sides of your eyes like a horse, and you focus on a spot about 30 feet in front of you, and your thinking needs to be, what do I need to do on every section of every curve to ensure I have the best time? If yeah. you change your focus, the fear will disappear. And I trust him, right, because he's got fruit on the trees, and I've known him forever, and, and, and I just trust him. And so I just let go. And that night I did about a hundred mind runs, right? Visualization runs, but with blinders on. And mm -hmm. then the next day when I take my next run, the fear disappeared. I mean, it didn't reduce the intensity. It disappeared. Yeah. Changing the focus changed the whole experience. And yeah. so um, when I, when, sometimes I'll do, uh, I do lots of sales kickoffs uh, as a professional speaker. I, I used to sell copiers in, in Houston. So I, you know, that's supposed to be really hard to do. It's perceived to be really tough. So I do a lot of sales kickoffs. And so I always make sure to tell that story, especially if it's, if, if we're in a bad uh, economy, I say, look, don't read the papers. Okay. Don't listen to the news. Get a USA Today subscription and send it to your competitor, okay? Because it's all bad news. See, bad news, uh, if they can scare you and if they can make you mad, that's good for ratings, but it's not good for business. So stop focusing on the news. Focus on what do I need to do in the next 10 minutes and the next 15 minutes to move my business forward? Who, I, who do I need to call? Who do I need to send an email to? And just focus, just like I have to focus, you know, I'm sliding 30 feet at a time, you focus your day 10 minutes at a day at a time, right? And if you do that, just the, the, the process of going through that process, you'll you'll be on top. You'll weather the storm if it's a if it's a recession. And and uh when other people go out of business, you you'll be up on top. So these are all principles that work for, for everything. Okay. So earlier mentioned, you know, how important perseverance is. All right. So can you can you go into a little bit more detail about why you know perseverance is so important? Yeah. When I was in high school, I read this. I've always been a voracious reader. And when I was in high school, I read this. I'm, it must have been in a book I, uh, uh, that mentioned a a study, and I wish I knew what study it had been, but. They just did a study on on a bunch of octogenarians, 80, 80 year old people. Mm -hmm. And they asked them, uh, well, this is a different, this is not going to answer your question, but I'm going to tell you this anyway, because it's good. And then we'll go to the other study. <laughs> they asked them, what are your biggest regrets? Number one and two were not spending enough time with my family. And number, uh, and the other one was 
playing life too safe, not taking enough risks. And when I read that, I made, I made a decision. Okay, whenever I have a choice, I'm going to take the tough choice, right? The harder one. So that when I'm 80, I don't have that regret. You always go for the tougher one. And, and then, hey, I didn't play it safe, right? Uh, if you survive to, to 80, you'll be a happy 80-year-old. <laughs> and uh, the family side, we homeschooled both of our kids. So we had them around all the time. So that took care of that. But to answer the, the other question, because this is another study, they it was a study on perseverance. They just studied a bunch of people and perseverance. I have no idea how it was conducted, but the the, the finding was if you don't quit, you have a 95% chance to reach your goal or dream. So that's almost a guarantee, right? If you don't quit. And so when I started reading those biographies and I started, I kept seeing perseverance over and over again, I, I realized that, wow, you know, these people are a bunch of hardheads. Some of them, 20 years, are banging their head on the wall to try to figure out how to make their dream come true. And if they didn't quit, one of two things always happened. They either figured it out on their own through sheer trial and error, or they ran to somebody who became their coach, their mentor, you know, their, their guide, and that person showed them the way. But the ones that quit didn't give an opportunity for those two things to happen. See? So you got to keep going. And, and, and it has to be something that's meaningful to you. Otherwise you're wasting your life. Right. I mean, you're climbing the ladder of the wrong wall. <laughs> and so I just made a decision at 12 years old. I'm not going to quit. If that's what it takes. Okay. Ruben doesn't quit. And, uh, and success is a decision sooner or later, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired and you get mad and you start doing things that you wouldn't have done before you were mad. And you, and, and if you're able to harness that anger into, you know, uh, forward motion into taking that next step, man, you're on your way, right? You got you got the courage to get started, beat. Yeah. So the thing about perseverance is that it brings in the concept of failure and setbacks. Right. And so what what I notice about people, Ruben, is some people they you know they avoid feedback that will that will show them that they failed. And, you know, obviously the thing about lose is that, you know, every time you go down the, the course, you get, you know, you get instantaneous feedback. Cause like, like you said, it goes to the thousands of a second, right? but to get that detailed feedback about why, right. You get, you know, you get the overall feedback, whether you succeeded or failed or, or failed. Right. But then it's really about why, and, you know, so what I'm really interested in is what was the thing inside you that sought out the feedback when you failed so you could continue to persevere? Wow. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I love this. I love it when you, when I get asked questions like that, right? Uh, well, when I do, uh, when I speak, uh, it's usually an hour long. And, and I always offer, let's do 15 minutes or 20 or 30 minutes of Q&A because people like the up close and personal. But that's my favorite part because once in a while I get a question like that and, and it makes it refreshing, right? It's not yeah. always the same thing. My dad, when, when I was a kid, he used to drill on me. It was always, uh, you know, books you read, people you hang around with. But the other thing he always talked about was if you, he said, life is tough. Okay, it's a series of storms, just like the news, you know, those cold fronts that keep coming. And and um, and it's it's kind of like you have to cross all these minefields throughout your life. 
And he said, the best way to cross a minefield is to follow somebody that's already crossed it. You just step in their footsteps. That saves you time and that saves you a lot of pain. And, and so I always would look, since he drilled at me as a little, little kid, it became natural for me to always look for the person that had already done what I wanted to do. And because that was the shortcut. I mean, at least, okay, uh, shameless plug here, but I just wrote a book called The Shortcut, okay? And the fastest way to achieve your goals. And the shortcut is find somebody that's already done what you want to do and follow and let go, right? Somebody that you trust, somebody that has fruit on the trees, right? They've been through that minefield and let go. Let go means when they give you advice, act on it right away. Now, I was really good about finding the, uh, seeking out the, the coach or mentor, but my bulldog personality, right, the, the tenacious personality made it where I, I wanted to control everything. And so I wouldn't listen to coach. It was crazy. I'd go find them, but then part of me resisted, right? I learned everything the hard way. Eventually, I would learn it. I would do it, but always the hard way. And my first coach, Dimitri, uh, he, he was a um, um, Ukrainian coach. He used to, he tells me now, right? He says, Ruben, you weren't bulldog. You were half bulldog and half mule. Okay. If you'd have just listened to me and applied my stuff right away, you wouldn't have gotten hurt like you did. I mean, not nearly as much. And so before my fourth Olympics, uh, I was 47. I was going to be 47 in Vancouver. I mean, mm -hmm. even, even several years before when I, my, my third Olympics was Salt Lake City, I was 39. Okay. And it had been 10 years since Albertville when I was 29. When I went into Salt Lake City, I felt just like a dad visiting his kids in college because everybody was in their 20s. And, and to make things worse, everybody would ask me, especially the other coaches would ask me, uh, so what are you coaching? I said, no, I'm an athlete. And they actually looked me up and down and they said, come on, what are you coaching? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no respect. But anyways, uh, so at at 47, they thought I was coach's dad, right? And so on the way to that one, uh, they changed the rules. Instead of the top 50 getting to go, it was going to be a top 40, all right? And so I was always ranked about 45 in the world when you do the, the, the math of qualifying to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So 50 was pretty doable. 40 was going to be a big stretch. And so that's when I realized I better start listening to the coach right away, okay? I got nothing, uh, I, you know, I I got my back to the wall. And so I started listening to Jonathan right away. And I started improving so quickly. Uh, I'm 61 now and I'm sliding better than ever, more consistently in better lines and better position at 61. Okay. Why? Because I started applying what coach teaches me right away. Now, I don't even know. I don't even remember what you asked me. <laughs> so no, it just had to do with uh, perseverance. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Like, oh. like seeking feedback because, you know, through failure. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it kind so, of goes into how important it is to pick out, you know, the the, the right role models and mentors, you know, yeah. to, who, you know, who provide that feedback. Oh, heck yeah. I, so in the old days, right, before they had, uh, uh, you know, camera phones and stuff, you take a run. You usually take three or four runs in the morning and then three or four runs in the afternoon. That's normal on a, on a training week. And that's about as many runs as you can take because your body just, you know, you feel like you have the flu if you do more than, than that. 
just the, the G forces and the speed and the cold and the, the mental stress, it just wears you out. And so how are you going to get good on eight runs a day, six to eight runs a good? Well, a lot of feedback, right? So the coaches, usually three coaches will stand in the three curves where we're having um, challenges. And they would videotape with the big video machines in the old days. And then you get to the bottom and, and you pick up the walkie-talkie and they give you feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And and then in the afternoon, in the evening, we wouldn't be able to see the video till that evening, right? Because he would plug it into the, the, the TV set and we'd all sit and watch our runs. And now we really see uh, how lousy, you know, we were really seeing the mistakes, right? And um, and if we have a few minutes in between runs, we might go to the coach and he says, okay, look, a couple of Italians and a German are coming up. Watch their lines. See, they were up here. You were down here. You started steering two feet too soon. I said, coach, I was going 80 miles an hour. He goes, well, you just started steering <laughs> two feet too soon. <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> and, but now we get faster feedback because they we can finish our run and we can look right away. Right. And that's important. Uh, I remember going to the Olympic Training Center here in Colorado Springs uh, a few years ago. My, my kids used to do judo over there. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the the, the gymnasts train, uh, the, the the male gymnasts, because the, the, the female gymnasts, they go, they have different places around the world, I mean, around mm -hmm. the country. But the males, since they start older or a little bit older, they're able to be resident athletes. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. They had all their apparatus. And, they, and, and there was two big screen TVs and there was cameras set up. And so they would finish, let's say it was the high, the high bar, right? Where, where they're doing loops and, 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 and letting go. And they, they, they finish, they would walk over to the side, talk to the coach, and then they would look up at, at, at one of the screens. And, they would, and, and they would, he would watch his, re, his routine like a minute after he just did it. It's fresh in his mind. And coach would be you know, pointing things out. And then they would turn around 90 degrees and now they're looking at, at another screen and it's showing him his routine from a different angle. I thought, oh man, so much feedback. And right away, so it, it, you know, you kill for that. <laughs> In the well, it, it's been shown that feedback is the number one predictor of performance, the quality. Okay. Yeah. The quality and timing, the accuracy of feedback is what is, is is a is the number one factor in performance, even ahead of talent. So that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I never yeah. heard of that, but it makes total sense. Yeah, but it takes a certain type of mindset to seek feedback, right? Yeah, particularly when you're failing, uh, because a lot of people want to hide their failure and conceal it from everybody, but to actually expose yourself and then go to a mentor or or a role model and say, hey, what am I doing wrong? To And get that honest and accurate feedback is absolutely critical because you you said it as a, as a you know, as a you know, throwaway statement. But it was the most important thing you said today is that, you know, with this one coach. Right. You didn't really listen to him. Right? But with the other coach, you started listening to him, to him right away. And bang, your performance just just skyrocketed instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I did this TED talk. I, I, I've been speaking professionally for over 20 years. And a couple of years ago, I did my first TED talk. And it was called The Power of Following the Leader. Right. Mm -hmm. Follow leader TED talk dot com. You can watch it there. And mm -hmm. and I am. Um, and I told that story, right? It's basically, that's the story that, that you said is so important. And it got a, a million views pretty quick. And 
And I started getting a lot of comments from people. I realized, wow, you know, maybe this is an idea that's timely. Maybe I'm not the only hardhead out there. And so that's what led to writing the shortcut book because, it, uh, it, you know, I realized this is an idea that's important, right? Yeah. And you said accurate and honest and uh, what was it? Timely. Yeah, critical. Uh, so for about 10 years, maybe 15 years, I had my second coach. The first one was Dimitri. And he basically, he was kind of like a youth pastor at church. He makes it happy and, and fun because he he understands that we got to keep these guys. If we can keep them through the first few years, they're gonna, they got a shot, right? Then, so we got to make it fun. And then, and then um, he got me through the first, to the first Olympics, Calgary. And then I, I uh, became part of this international team made up of small countries. And, um, and our coach was a, a three-time world champion from Austria. And so maybe it was the classic, he's a great athlete, but he doesn't know how to coach. That was, that, that was basically it. He was babysitting us, basically. Mm -hmm. and, I rem and then on the way to, um, to uh, and so he got me through the, to, to the next two Olympics. And, and then on, when I finally found Jonathan Edwards, right, who really understands, um, and I finally started to listen. Right around the time that he told me about, you know, you have to stop looking at those walls because they're scaring you. Uh, we were doing some work on my sled up in Calgary, and we had it sit sitting up on a on on a workbench. And we finished the work, and then the coach. This is another coach. This guy's from Latvia, Guntis. Um, he's a three-time Olympian from Latvia that coached the the U.S. team up at at the Calgary track, and. He says, "Okay, lay on the sled and pretend you do a start, and and I want you, I want to see what you do when you when you when you paddle and 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 how you lay down." And I did it, right? And he do it, and he says, "Now get this, I'm a three time Olympian, two years from hopefully my fourth Olympics." Okay, he looks at me and goes, "That's not how you hold the handles." I said, "What?" He goes, "You don't hold them that way." Now that's like telling a guy that's been in three Indy 500s, that's not how you hold the steering wheel. I mean, that's pretty basic stuff, right? Yeah. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you, you're holding it with all four fingers, right? Well, when you make it, when you, as soon as you get scared by anything, you make a fist and that transfers the tension to your forearm. It goes up to your chest now, that's, but it starts with the fist. He says, you have to hold it with just the two fingers, like you're making a gun, right? Like that, because these two fingers, they don't have any strength. You can tie And so you hold Look, if you crash, you're gonna fly off anyway. So, so four or two fingers makes a zero difference. So hold on like this, and you'll be faster. And at that point, I wanted to go and you know and strangle my previous coach, who'd seen me for you know 15 years. And he, Ruben, you must relax. But he never told me that I needed to change my handle. Yeah. I mean, that would have helped, right? <laughs> thing. But I, I tell you that that reminds me of a story about uh, John Wooden, the, the legendary UCLA basketball coach. Uh, is on the first day of practice, uh, he the uh, and the very first thing that he did with his newcoming uh, uh, athletes, the freshmen, and all these freshmen were highly recruited. They were the best in the country. You know, all Americans. The first thing he did was not not teach him ball ball drills or 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 uh, or defensive stances. The first thing he taught them was how to put on a sock and lace up your shoes correctly. 
He got that basic as the very first thing that you should do. And it's kind of like the same thing with, you know, with, with how to, how to hold on to the, uh, to the sledge. That's the thing that really guides you. Right. I couldn't believe it. And so, so I, I, uh, so, okay, do it again, Ruben. Right. So I do it again, right. In front of Guntis. And of course, muscle memory, I held it the same way. Right. And he says, no, not like that. Two, oh, I got it. I got it. Guntis, two fingers. Okay. I remember. No, get off the sled. He gets a grinder, cuts the, cuts my handles in half. So only two fingers will fix, will fit. Right. I said, what are you doing? I'm making you faster. Shut up. But, <laughs> and because of that, a couple of days later, I was able to break my personal best by two tenths of a second because I was already starting to be more relaxed. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, I, and, and for and for the listeners out there, they have to understand this because your sport is measured in thousands of a second and you improved your time by two tenths. That's that that's monumental. Would that's 200, 1,000 of a second. That's a lot of time. That's a lot it's of time. A, yeah. Little things make a big difference. Little hinges open and close big doors, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you don't see, okay, whether you're a salesperson, you you know, you can always benefit from a more experienced and 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 more successful uh, salesperson listening into your calls and then debriefing in between. It's just like taking, you know, talking to coach after every run. Hey, next time you might want to say this. Next time you might want to, you know, uh, uh, your tone of inflection when you ask a boy, well, you know, when are you going to be, you know, when should I call you next? Is it, it, better than, uh, when should I call you, but what, when should I call you next, right? No, see, if you if, if you have a low, you finish the sentence with a low voice, like you're talking to a subordinate, that carries uh, confidence, right? But if you, if you turn it up like a question, then that shows, you know, <laughs> fear, right? And, and it, it's like a dog, they can feel it, right? And so little things make big difference in any in, in any uh, endeavor. So this brings up the idea of uh, of a concept that I'm very interested in is called friction. Okay, and if you remove friction, then you just naturally uh, get to your goal faster. And so, you know, just like your like your book, and but a couple of things you, you spoke about, like t- I took some notes on, you know, once you started accepting, seeking and accepting feedback, right? And then once you adjusted your grip, right? That just removed friction because that's really what you're fighting against in lose is that you're going down the ice, right? And the more friction that you incur, the slower you go. Right, but the 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 but the less friction you incur, the faster you go. So it'd be interesting, you know, for you know to to learn about what do you think are the 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 points of friction that you were able to eliminate through that Olympic career that you share with you know with your audiences so they can learn from you know from your experiences, at, you know, competing at the highest level, you know, possible. Yeah. Well. Uh... We mentioned a few of them. One of them is seek out somebody that knows. I have a Hobie wave, a Hobie, uh, a little catamaran. Uh, yeah. If you've ever been to a, like a, a Mexico resort, they have them in all the resorts because yeah. they're indestructible. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when I saw indestructible, I thought that's the one for me, right? Because I can make mistakes. I can hit stuff. 
and I can learn faster. Where if I buy a fiberglass one, it's uh, I'll be afraid to scratch it, and it's uh, it's kind of like when you play soccer right? or or American football. You want to you want to as soon as you fall on the ground, you get a little grass stain. Now you're now you're really starting to play. Before you you wanted to keep your 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 jersey you know pristine yeah. right <laughs> if you're a smart coach you have everybody roll around the the mud before the game right uh-huh. <laughs> and so uh so i got this kobe wave i've had it for a couple of years and and i'm a baby sailor okay i'm not a, I'm, I'm a beginner mm-hmm. and uh a couple of weeks ago i found about a month ago i found a group of uh hobie sailors that live in denver i live in colorado springs I thought, great. And I hooked up with them. And they says, yeah, we're getting ready to go to this lake, Lake McConaughey, McConaughey in, in Nebraska. It's a three and a half hour drive, but it's a huge lake. And it's got better wind than, than here in Colorado, where it's very gusty because of the mountains. And uh, you, you know, you're you welcome to join us. And so I went, you know, and I spent a couple of days, um, you know, learning from people that are further along than me. And then I found out that one of the guys, Bart, forget his last name, but Bart, uh, he He's national champion at 17-foot Hobies. And so they were having a regatta, and I was just playing around, just trying to watch, you know, following them around. Uh, then when we finally came down, he's, uh, I said, hey, Bart, you know, would you mind, you know, after dinner maybe uh, hopping on my on my, on my my Hobie wave and just riding with me? Because that 15 minutes with you is probably going to move me ahead 20 years. I mean, or two years. I said two years, not 20 two years yeah yeah sure and then the wind died i mean totally died and we couldn't do it but but get this that this last night i woke up in the middle of the night i said i don't have to wait till next year bart lives in i just need to invite him there's there's reservoirs around here i can get my lesson anytime so you know i'm gonna gonna call him today and say hey let's get together and and so i'm seeking out the guy that can help me right and and it makes for a good story uh, when I tell this, because now look, I my my first hope my my first Hobie instructor was a national champ. I wasn't afraid to go approach him because he's happy to help because he wants to you know uh, increase and and grow his sport. Yeah, and it makes makes him feel good. Yeah, you you'd be surprised uh, to learn how uh, the research on helping is that most people are afraid to ask for help, right? Because they, they think the person doesn't want to help. Overwhelmingly, the majority of people want to help others. And so just by, you know, putting yourself out there and 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 asking for help, right, will expedite things, will reduce. Oh the- yes, yes. I so whenever I tell the story, right, about how my I started improving so much when I, you know, actually <laughs> uh, did what the coach uh told me I needed to do and how the, the secret the, the the shortcut is to find somebody right and follow in their footsteps I always get pushback from my audiences afterwards they'll say if there's a Q&A afterwards they always say oh yeah but they're so busy you know and uh, I don't want to impose and I say look you know how people always say she's happy she, she's successful but she's not happy oh he's successful but he's not fulfilled he's always looking for something else you know why that is it's because success is not the gold medal. Everybody thinks it's the gold medal. It's not. It's, so success is the silver medal. The gold medal is called significance. That means you help somebody else succeed. You made a difference. You created a ripple effect of success. And that fills that little hole in your heart. You know, the world is a better place because of you. And so 
if you genuinely want to, you know, do something, achieve a certain goal, and if you will genuinely follow, right, take action on what they teach you, you owe it to them <laughs> to uh, to call them up. But if you're going to be an eternal learner, don't bother them because they, they won't stand for that. If, if they were successful, it's because they were, they're an action person, and that's what they're looking for, an action person. Yeah. You know, when, when you're talking about the catamaran and then, you know, you segue, uh, you know, in, in, into asking for help, it's it's basically the same thing. And it reminded me of a of a player I coached when I was an assistant coach at the University of Delaware. I was coaching the receivers and both my tight ends were obviously on the field goal PAT team. And uh, we were practicing on a Monday and we were preparing to play the University of Connecticut and if we won that game, we were going to win the conference. So it was, it was a big game. And it was just one of those November days in the middle Atlantic that's just rainy and cold and just awful. And you could just hear, you know, because we, we didn't warm up as a team. We warmed up as groups. But through over two football fields, as different groups got down to stretch, right, in this wet, wet, cold. Miserable miserable conditions you can just hear different groans uh, 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 all right and then we started off the, the practice with the pat field goal and um so I'm, I'm i'm jogging over with the with the rest of my guys and uh one of my tight ends jeff jostoffer we called him jj right was kind of lagging behind i said come on jj and jj just starts sprinting and everybody else the whole team is already over there and he just takes a flying leap, okay, a flying <laughs> leap uh, from about twenty yards away from where we were going to huddle up, right? And he just, he just oh, a belly lot, uh, just the, and and it just and 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 I got to tell you, Ruben, it set the tone for the week because we just from that point on we just embraced the suck, right? And <laughs> it was just awful, right? but you know. And but that day, uh, the day that we did play UConn was an awful, you know, 35 degrees sleet and and rain. Right? But we killed them because we just embraced the suck. Right? Is this we just had the willingness to do the hard thing right from the beginning of the week. And JJ set the tone for that. Yeah, it was like a pattern interrupt. He yeah, totally changed everything. Yeah, and 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 to really, awesome. I love to make it. the analogy really work is that he just took all the friction out of it by sliding across the grass. It was just fantastic. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, I, I I could talk to you all day, Ruben. I, I, there's so many more questions I have for you, but let, let me let me start with this. Um, so, what do you do to relax? Obviously, you're a hard charging guy. You're you're achievement oriented, but what do you do to relax? That boat, I tell you, yeah. that boat is great. Um, because when you're when you sail, it's totally different from from a motorboat. When you're sailing, you're constantly having to do something. You're always watching the wind, and and you have to adjust, and it keeps you busy. And and um, time just they say that that sailing is freedom over time because. After a while, you have no idea what time it is. It has, have I been sailing two hours, three, four? You have no clue. You know, you don't have time to, I don't even take the phone. What do I, you know, I don't want to take the phone. But uh, uh, they say that flying, flying airplanes is freedom over space. 
and and sailing is freedom over time. So for me, that is so relaxing. I love it. But grabbing a book too, a personal development book, you know, or a uh, or a good novel, I, I enjoy that. Hiking, um, but sailing, I would say, is probably number one because I. The thing about sailing is sure certainly shows that there are forces bigger and stronger than yourself, and that you have to you know accommodate those forces. Yeah, and the gas mileage is great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Ruben, how can people uh, get in touch with you? Uh, oh, it, it, the easiest way is the, the shortcutbook.com. The shortcutbook.com. That's just one page of my whole website. And so you can look through there. And, and if you go up to the top, you know, you can watch videos and uh, and and learn more. So, the shortcutbook.com. That's the easiest one to uh Terrific. Well, Ruben, I can tell you that um, it, 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 it's it's such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you because Olympians, and, and I think this was showed through this through this interview, Olympians have a different mindset than just about anybody else. And that's just not a statement uh, or an opinion. That's actually a statement of fact, because I have the data to prove that. And uh, I think the uh, I think the listeners are going to get a, a great deal out of this interview just because your mindset is 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 uniquely different. So I want to thank you uh, for appearing on the X Factor. Uh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, too. All right. All right, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. And thanks again for tuning into the X Factor. And we will see you next time.